Israel's military claims to have re-established control in the country two days after a massive attack by Hamas. At the same time, Israel is pummeling Gaza and amassing thousands of troops along the border. Our story is coming up on this Monday, October 9th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The latest is just ahead. Former President Donald Trump comments on the Israel-Hamas conflict and other issues as he takes his campaign to Wolfboro, New Hampshire. And a New York City woman spent years searching for her missing mentally ill son, only to learn the worst. I don't understand what people think when they say, well, at least now you know. I'd rather not know. I'd rather keep on looking. More on the surprising life and death of one young homeless man coming up. It's 4.01. The forecast and the latest news are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. In an address to the country, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vowed that the military offensive against Hamas is just beginning. Israeli media reports more than 900 Israelis have been killed. Palestinian deaths are nearly nearing 700. Israel is fighting to retake control of several of its residential communities. NPR's Daniel Estrin is in Tel Aviv and reports that Israeli forces have struck mosques and homes in Gaza. Israel bombed at least a thousand targets in Gaza, including mosques. A bombing on one mosque damaged a dozen homes, trapping people under rubble. The Israeli defense minister says Gaza will be under complete closure. There will be no electricity, food or fuel delivered to Gaza. In Israel, the army says Gaza militants have continued to infiltrate Israel and that Israeli troops were battling Hamas militants in at least seven Israeli residential communities. An Israeli family was still being held hostage by Hamas inside Israel. And Israel says dozens of Israelis have been kidnapped to Gaza, including soldiers plus women, children and elderly. Israel says militants hijacked a car and were stopped before reaching a major Israeli city. Throughout Israel, police are setting up checkpoints and aiming their guns at approaching cars. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Russia's foreign minister and the head of the Arab League have been meeting in Moscow. NPR's Philip Reeves says Russia is offering to help bring peace. There is no sign diplomacy can stop the explosion of violence in Israel and the Gaza Strip anytime soon. That hasn't deterred Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, from adding his voice to the chorus calling for an urgent halt to the war. Lavrov told the head of the Arab League, Ahmed Abul Gate, that Russia is willing to help end the conflict, adding that a two-state solution is the only way to bring lasting peace between Israel and the Palestinians. His words will ring hollow in the West, given the brutality of Russia's war on Ukraine. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is drawing a parallel between Russia's invasion and the attack by Hamas on Israel. They're the same evil, he says. Philip Reeves, NPR News. Robert Kennedy Jr. is now running for president as an independent. Kennedy is an environmental lawyer known for spreading anti-vaccine conspiracy theories. I've come here today to declare our independence from the tyranny of corruption, which robs us of affordable lives, our belief in the future, and our respect for each other. But to do that, but to do that, I must first declare my own independence. Independence from the Democratic Party. The Republican Party is responding, saying Kennedy is not even close to an independent. Members of the House are meeting behind closed doors this week to discuss who will become the chamber's next speaker. A vote could come in a few days. Congressmen Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan are both seeking the gavel. You are listening to NPR News from Washington. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A group of American Jews who support freedom for Palestinians and Israelis recited the Mourner's Kaddish in Cambridge today. That's a prayer typically recited after the death of a loved one. Nathan Foster is a spokesperson for the group, if not now, when Boston. He says the group also read the works of both Palestinian and Israeli writers. We're really warning what's happening and it's devastating. We're trying to find a way to come together and to promote an alternative to the calls for greater violence in response to the violence that Hamas has perpetrated. There is no security in more violence. There is no security in oppression. There's only security in peace. Foster says they will continue to hold actions in the coming days to try to influence the Biden and Netanyahu administrations to promote peace in the region. An Airbnb operator in Quincy is back in business after the city tried to shut her down. Mass Lawyers Weekly reports that a Dedham Superior Court judge ruled in favor of Cheng Liao. She rents rooms on a temporary basis in her Quincy duplex. The city had asked the court for a preliminary injunction to enforce a new zoning ordinance that prohibits short-term rentals in a predominantly single-family residential neighborhood. But a judge ruled against the city stating the rental property existed before the ordinance took effect. TD Garden is launching an effort to make its events sensory inclusive. The garden was certified by a sensory accessibility nonprofit to accommodate the guests. Staff learned how to recognize guests with sensory needs and handle a sensory overload situation. The arena is equipped with sensory bags packed with noise-canceling headphones, fidget tools, verbal cue cards, and weighted laptops. There are also four new sensory rooms, the largest number of these rooms, in a single venue worldwide. 62 degrees, the holiday ends pretty much as it began, dry and coolish. As we said, 62 now should fall to the mid-40s overnight tonight. Tomorrow, partly sunny. The chance of a shower late morning, early afternoon should have highs in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. It's 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. On a Monday, this is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. This is only the beginning. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said today, he added, we are going to change the Middle East. He was visiting the southern border of Israel with Gaza, the scene of the unprecedented attack over the weekend by the Palestinian militant group Hamas. He warned that his country's military offensive will intensify. Earlier, Israel's defense minister ordered a complete siege of Gaza, saying no water, no electricity, no food will be allowed in. 300,000 military reservists have been called up. There is speculation that a ground invasion of Gaza is imminent. NPR's Aya Petrawi is in the outskirts of Tel Aviv tonight. Hey there. Hi. Hi. So we're now in day three of this conflict. You are in Israel. What does it look like? What does it feel like there tonight? So, yeah, as you said, there's a lot of reservists being called over to the border with Gaza, and there are still Israeli forces going house to house there looking for Palestinian militants. They say they took back control of a police station in one southern town that had been taken over by militants. Um, I can see attack helicopters since I arrived yesterday in the sky heading towards the south. Um, The country's on edge. Schools are closed. Shops are shuttered in Tel Aviv. 
Um, there was a rocket that hit Jerusalem, wounding two people there. But there's also been violence and killings of Palestinians in the West Bank by settlers and Israeli forces, and some of those killed were children. Um, and the language from defense officials in Israel has been clear. We heard the Israeli defense minister today when he announced that full siege on Gaza, saying that Israel is fighting, quote, human animals that will be dealt with accordingly. And the question now is when Israel will launch a ground invasion. The last time it did was in 2014 during that war, and it was for nearly three weeks. And there were big casualties among uh, Palestinian civilians, but also Israeli forces. Um, but here's the aim of this mission. Um, here's what Israeli Defense Forces spokesman Jonathan Kornick has said. Our job is to make sure that at the end of this war, Hamas will no longer have any military capabilities to threaten Israeli civilians with. And in addition to that, we are also to make sure that Hamas will not be able to govern the Gaza Strip. Hey, I want to stay with the Gaza Strip. What do we know of, of the situation there today? Well, as you heard Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, saying today, we're just seeing the beginning. And what that beginning looks like is hundreds already killed in the past two days, mosques and high-rise towers bombed by F-16 fighter jets. And around a fifth of those killed so far have been children. And Gazans are fleeing their homes. They're taking shelter in schools and UN-run facilities. And just before I got on the air, a woman uh, named Ruba Akila, who I've known for years and been in touch with daily since the violence erupted, messaged me that the port in Gaza was bombed. She lives um, near there and that glass had shattered in her home. I messaged her two minutes after she had sent me that and those messages haven't gone through. Another woman I spoke with, Iman Abu Said, told me she just found out today her cousin was killed in an airstrike. He leaves behind five kids and a wife. She tells me he was a driver and a, a civilian. When I asked her how she's getting by on no electricity or water, particularly her building because the building next to them was bombed and it took out those supplies, she said, I think what many moms can relate to. It's very, very hard. Even all the time, I'm feeling so stressed. I can't manage to cook, so we try to, to do some junk food, anything that's in the fridge, because you know that uh, no electricity now, no water. And her kids are um, 11 and 12 years old, and she tells me they've already lived through four wars or conflicts with Israel, and they've never left the Gaza Strip because they can't. The area is blockaded. It's been under a blockade for 16 years by Egypt and Israel. And I asked her what she thought about the attack on Israel, the civilians that were killed, the civilians that were taken hostage. We're talking about a, a grandmother, a Holocaust survivor, children. But here's what she said about that. Civilians shouldn't be attacked. But what about the civilians of the Gazans? Is it only the right for Israel, uh, the occupation, to defend themselves? What about the Gazans? What about them? What about them? Who will defend them? Uh, I, I want to ask the what's next question, and I know that's impossible to say, but there is, as we mentioned, growing speculation that a ground invasion of Gaza may be coming and soon. How likely is that? What are the risks? I mean, it's inevitable, many would say, that there's going to be a ground invasion. And I think the dilemma Israel faces is not just the risks that that poses to its own forces going in there, but to the hostages. Israel still hasn't said how many were taken, but we've seen reports in Israeli media of at least 100. That includes soldiers and civilians, again, children, families, elderly. 
Hamas said an Israeli airstrike actually overnight killed four hostages. It released the image of one soldier uh, before he died uh, who was held there in that and killed in that attack. And and here's another thing Hamas warned. Their military wing, Kata'ib Azuddin al-Qassam, said for every attack without a warning on a home in Gaza that kills children and women there, they will kill a civilian hostage. So I think the larger risk here is that this isn't only between Israel and Gaza, but that it drags in others. Gunmen from a Palestinian armed group in Lebanon tried to cross mm -hmm. into Israel today, leading to clashes there. So there's a real risk that this becomes regional. NPR's Aya Batrawi on the outskirts of Tel Aviv tonight. Thank you. Thanks. At a supermarket or a baseball game or most public places, you can generally expect to be anonymous. That could end if big tech companies release a tool that lets you search for a person by taking a photo of their face. The effect could be so worrisome that even Silicon Valley has been reluctant to unveil it, as NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen reports. Imagine walking down a busy street and snapping a photo of a stranger, then uploading that photo into a search engine that helps you identify the person. This isn't a hypothetical. It's already happening now thanks to a website called PimEyes. Developed by two hackers in Poland, it's an AI tool that's like a reverse image search on steroids. It scans a face in the photo and crawls the dark corners of the internet to surface photos many people didn't even know existed of themselves. In the background of restaurants or attending a concert, Imagine if this technology became widespread and even spookier, says journalist Kashmir Hill. Something happens on a train, you bump into somebody or you're wearing something embarrassing. Somebody could just take your photo and find out who you are and maybe tweet about you and kind of call you out by name or write nasty things about you online. Hill is a New York Times reporter who recently published a book about facial recognition technology called Your Face Belongs to Us. She says super powerful face search engines have been developed at big tech companies like Meta and Google, but executives there, like former Google CEO Eric Schmidt, have been reluctant to release them into the world. Eric Schmidt, as far back as 2011, said that this was the one technology that Google had developed and decided to hold back, that it was too dangerous if in the wrong hands, if it was used by a dictator, for example. There are potential upsides to this technology for people who are blind, or if you see someone at a party whose name you forget, you could snap a photo and instantly identify them. But on the flip, stalkers have already used it. And government and private companies could deploy the technology to profile or surveil people in public. It's this debate that society needs to have, whether we all want the superpower or not. Facial recognition tools are already out in the world. You can unlock your iPhone by letting the phone scan your irises, and the TSA is now scanning faces at airports to identify people. But a face search engine would take this idea to an entirely different level. And while big tech companies have been holding back, smaller startups pushing the technology are gaining momentum, like PimEyes, and another called Clearview AI, which provides AI-powered face search engines to law enforcement. Pim Eyes and Clearview AI did not make anyone available for an interview. Woodrow Hartzog studies facial recognition technology. He's a professor at Boston University School of Law. He says Washington needs to regulate, even outright ban the tools before it becomes too widespread. I think that it should really tell you something about how radioactive and corrosive facial recognition is that the larger tech companies have resisted wading in, even when there's so much money to be made on. Most Silicon Valley watchers say it's just a matter of time. Look at AI chatbots, for example. Silicon Valley giants had developed them for years in labs, but only released them when a smaller startup, OpenAI, made ChatGPT available to the public. 
Eventually, tech watchers say big tech companies will have no choice but to make advanced face search engines publicly available. It's a future Hartzog is hoping never comes to pass. If facial recognition is deployed widely, then it's virtually the end of the ability to hide and play sites, which we do all the time, but we don't really think about. In the EU, lawmakers are debating a ban of facial recognition technology in public spaces. Brussels-based activist Ella Yakubowska is hoping regulators go even further and ban the tools altogether. She's behind a campaign called Reclaim Your Face that is warning against a society where visits to the doctor, a stroll down a college campus, or even crossing a street will expose someone's face to scanning. In some parts of the continent, it's already happening. We've seen in Italy the use of biometric and they call them smart, quote unquote, surveillance systems used to detect if people are loitering or trespassing. Jakubowska says the EU's so-called AI Act will be coming up with rules over how biometric data, like someone's face, fingerprints and voice, will be regulated. We reject the idea that as human beings, we should be treated as walking barcodes so that governments can keep tabs on us even when we haven't done anything wrong. In the U.S., meanwhile, there are laws in some states like Illinois that give people protection over how their face is scanned and used by private companies. But until there is federal regulation, how and where faces are recorded will be determined largely by tech companies. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR on today's holiday. Still to come on All Things Considered, misinformation about the war between Israel and Hamas is spreading on social media. Videos are being taken out of context or mischaracterize the story and much more coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Elliott Community Human Services, committed to serving the most vulnerable populations and transforming lives. ElliottCHS.org. Wall Street was open for the holiday. The Dow and S&P each rose about six-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ rose four-tenths of a percent. The Food and Drug Administration has rejected a drug made by Cambridge-based Alnylam Pharmaceuticals. The Boston Business Journal reports the FDA cited a lack of clinical meaningfulness for its rejection. Its own advisory committee voted 9-3 to three to endorse the drug that treats a rare cardiac disorder. The same drug has been approved for a different indication since 2018. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lessons in Chemistry. Oscar winner Brie Larson stars as a chemist who hosts a cooking show, proving life doesn't follow a formula. Streaming October 13th on Apple TV+. And the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at mos.org. 
Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. A few bits of sunshine today, some fair weather clouds. Tonight, partly cloudy and calm in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunshine and clouds mix it up once again. A slight chance of a shower. Temperatures in the mid-60s. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Hamas's surprise attack on Israel and the escalation into war over the weekend has people in Israel, Gaza, around the world seeking information, seeking facts about what is happening. But social media and messaging apps are awash in viral rumors, also false misleading images and videos. NPR's Shannon Bond joins us to disentangle some of these narratives. Hey, Shannon. Hey, Mary Louise. Tell me what people are encountering. They go online, they're trying to find the latest news, and... Well, they are seeing a flood of posts claiming to show what is happening in Israel and Gaza, but not all of them are what they seem. So, for example, one video that's been making the rounds shows what looks to be a helicopter being shot down with a shoulder-mounted weapon. But that is actually not a video at all. It's a clip from a video game. There are other videos circulating that are from real videos from actual conflicts, but they may be months or even years old. In some cases, they're not from Israel or Gaza at all. I spoke with Achia Schatz. He's executive director of Fake Reporter, a watchdog group in Israel that tracks misinformation. And he says this is all the result of a lack of verified information from credible sources at a time of high interest. And then all of this is then getting amplified by, in some cases, people with political agendas. And it's particularly bad on t- on Twitter, now known as X, uh, where Elon Musk, as owner, has removed many of the guardrails against the spread of these kinds of false and misleading narratives. Yeah, I was going to ask how Twitter is holding up so far in this war, because it's been a really important channel in breaking news situations like this in past. Right. And it still is. I mean, it's where people are going to find information. But these kinds of misleading and false posts are especially rampant there. Since Musk bought the platform, he dramatically cut staff. Take one video that was posted by the co-chair of a group that calls itself Republicans Overseas Israel. The video shows a man playing with a baby, and the caption claims it is, quote, a Hamas terrorist with kidnapped Jewish baby girl in Gaza. But this video was originally posted back in August on TikTok. There is no indication that it depicts a kidnapped child or a terrorist. It has been labeled with a user-generated fact check on X pointing this out. But you know the post remains up. It's been seen more than 900,000 times. And we also have Musk himself adding to the confusion. He's recommended people follow accounts that have posted false claims in the past. And remember, Mary Louise, the incentives on X have changed. Users who play for a blue check, they get their posts boosted. They can earn advertising money regardless of whether they're credible or not. So what should people be looking for when they are trying to evaluate what's real and what's not when they go online? 
I think you should bring a healthy skepticism to everything you see. Does the video you're seeing have context? How do you know it's showing what it claims to show? Are there multiple sources for what you're reading or seeing? And especially on messaging apps like WhatsApp and Telegram, you know, those are both very popular in Israel. There are viral rumors and unverified messages spreading there. So people should be wary of messages or posts that have been forwarded many times where you sort of can't see the chain of where it came from. Shannon, some of these things you're telling us about are clearly individuals exploiting chaos for whatever reason. Are we seeing states, state actors, organized groups behind any of these online narratives? We haven't seen evidence of that yet, um, but it's certainly something we're going to be looking out for. Chaos is a welcome environment for all kinds of malicious actors. You know, they're seeking opportunities to spread propaganda, to attack their enemies, to simply amplify this confusion. And so certainly the platforms, you know, national security experts and we will be watching out for all of this in the coming days and weeks. NPR's Shannon Bond spreading truth and facts here on NPR. Thank you very much for your reporting. Thank you, Mary Louise. You're listening to All Things Considered. Former President Trump visited New Hampshire today. His campaign is increasing efforts to solidify support in crucial early primary states. His visit comes as Nikki Haley is gaining steam in New Hampshire, and it's a state that some Republican leaders see as the best last chance to disrupt the former president's lead. But those waiting in line to hear Trump speak at a high school in Wolfboro did not seem worried. We are going to go to Wolfboro now, which is where we find NPR. White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Hey there. Hey, Mary Louise. Hey, Franco. So Trump is riding really high in the polls. Why is his campaign pulling out the stops in New Hampshire? You know, look, I mean, there is a difference with New Hampshire. I mean, in Iowa, it's a lot more conservative. It's more evangelical. Voters in New Hampshire, Republican voters, though, are known to have an independent streak. So you have to take a bit of a different approach. And the state has a history of bucking national trends. There's also some uncertainty in New Hampshire because of the primary system. You don't have to be a Republican to vote in the primary. You can be an independent. You can be a Democrat. So that means that the candidates have to approach New Hampshire a bit differently and have to think about potentially a broader audience than than the base. So I mentioned you're there for this rally at a high school. Have you managed to speak to voters? What are they telling you? Yeah, I spoke to a lot of voters and I talked to them about that kind of shifting ground and they did not seem to be that worried about it. Here's Tim Carter, who I caught up with near the front of the line. He runs a home improvement website and writes a column. He was kind of pointing to the long line of people weaving through the parking lot as I spoke to him. If Nikki Haley came here today, she would she would not have 5% of the people that you see right here right now. She's a career politician. Trump is not a politician. That's why all of us love him. He's not a politician. 
you know, I'll just note, Mary Louise, that I was at a local diner earlier in the day where I spoke to many voters about Haley and some of the other Republican candidates. And many of them had a lot of interest in Haley and thought she was just gaining momentum. Now, Trump has been attacking Biden over what's happening in Israel, the attacks there. What did voters you talked to say about that? Yeah, Trump actually in the in the rally today tried to blame the surprise attack by Hamas on Israel on Biden. You know, he called Biden a weak leader and cited the administration's decision to free up six billion dollars in funds as part of the deal to free imprisoned Americans. I actually spoke to Deborah and James Morse. She's a local realtor. He's a firefighter. She talked about that six billion dollars and, and he thought it would be different if Trump was in charge. You just need strong leadership, and we don't have it. And I think, you know, if you've got a brain in your head, I think you realize that the U.S. wants to do right by everybody. But you've got you to have strong leadership, and you've got to take care of yourself first and then help others. Of course, the Biden administration says the money is for humanitarian needs and emphasize that none of it actually has been spent. But as we know, that hasn't stopped the political attacks. And some voters, at least Republican voters and Trump voters, are listening. And Pierre's Franco Ordonez on the ground for us in New Hampshire. Thank you, Franco. Thank you. This is NPR News. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Hart Island is where bodies in New York go when they're unclaimed or unidentified. Coming up on All Things Considered in about six minutes, a special feature on one man buried there who lived two lives in different places under different names. A partly cloudy and calm night tonight. Temperatures in the mid-40s. Tomorrow's sun and clouds again. Slight chance of a shower. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Could see more sunshine on Wednesday and possibly for the rest of the week. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by McLean Hospital. For expert research-based psychiatric care, turn to McLean. Leading clinicians treating depression, anxiety, addiction, and more. Innovative care from specialists dedicated to improving lives. U.S. News ranks McLean number one for psychiatric care in the country. More at mcleanhospital.org. And UMass Chan Medical School. Advancing medicine, nursing, and science together. More on their culture of collaboration at umassmed.edu slash together. The operator of a popular political news site in Florida admits it's often hard to tell the journalism from the paid ads. I don't think I've ever held myself up as a journalist. I've said that I'm a publisher. He's only covering the story if you've written a check. Why is his site expanding? Also the latest news from Israel and Gaza on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The White House says at least 11 American citizens have been killed in the fighting between Hamas and Israel. NPR's Jackie Northam has more. The State Department said other U.S. citizens remain missing and unaccounted for. It didn't give a firm number of people, though. The U.S. is working with its Israeli partners to try to locate other Americans caught up in the violence. And the State Department says it's in touch with families and is providing consular assistance. Secretary of State Antony Blinken on Sunday said it's possible that some Americans have been abducted by Hamas militants. 
NPR's Jackie Northam reporting. Meanwhile, as Israel announced fresh strikes in Gaza today, the militant wing of Hamas is threatening the lives of the hostages. The group says for every home in Gaza that Israel bombs without warning and results in the death of women, children, or the elderly, they will kill one hostage. Groups and cities around the U.S. have held marches supporting the Palestinian cause, and those rallies drew fierce criticism from many politicians. NPR's Brian Mann has more. In the wake of Hamas's brutal attacks and Israel's counterstrikes, groups including the People's Forum in New York City marched in support of Palestinians. Scuffles broke out as protesters stomped on an Israeli flag. Pro-Palestinian marches also took place in Atlanta, Chicago, Denver, and Washington, D.C., and a coalition of student groups at Harvard issued a letter blaming Israel for the violence. These rallies and statements drew condemnations from political leaders. Senator Chuck Schumer called the New York rally, quote, cold-hearted. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, a Harvard graduate, called the student group letter abhorrent and heinous. Brian Mann, NPR News, New York. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 197 points. The Nasdaq up 52. The S&P 500 up 27. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healey and other state leaders were among those gathered today at the Boston Common to show support for Israel after the Palestinian militant group Hamas launched a surprise, broad attack on the country over the weekend. WBUR's Ariel Gray has more. The Israeli government says more than 800 Israelis have been killed since the beginning of the surprise attack Saturday. This afternoon, Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey labeled the attacks as indefensible. We join President Biden and people across the world in condemning these acts of terror. We condemn them as a matter of fundamental human decency. We condemn them as attacks on our own beloved community here in Massachusetts. Our bond with Israel is unbreakable. Senator Elizabeth Warren and Boston Mayor Michelle Wu also spoke to the crowd, declaring their support for Israel and Boston's Jewish community. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Ariel Gray. Officials are investigating after a Chelsea man was shot to death near Congress and Shirtlift Streets. Police responded to a shot spotter notification just before 10.30 last night and found a man with apparent gunshot wounds. 23-year-old Santos David Gonzalez was taken to Mass General, where he died a short time later. Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden says another young life has been cut short and a family will live in grief because of illegal guns. The Boston Landmarks Commission is recommending that City Hall's exterior and interior main lobby be designated as a landmark. The effort dates back to a public petition submitted to the commission in 2007. The brutalist-style concrete building has landed on several ugliest building lists. The study will be discussed at a public hearing later this month. It's 434. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Brown University's Master's in Healthcare Leadership, an accelerated one-year program transforming healthcare leaders. Professional.brown.edu. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. Should fall to the mid-40s overnight tonight, then for tomorrow, partly sunny skies, maybe a shower late in the morning or early afternoon, highs in the mid-60s. 62 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. From Indeed, a hiring platform committed to making it easy for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We are continuing to follow ongoing violence between Israel and Hamas. Stay with us for the latest throughout today's show. Right now, we're going to Heart Island. Since 1869, more than a million people have been buried there in mass graves, no headstones. This is where New Yorkers end up when their bodies aren't claimed by their families or can't be identified. We're starting a new series from Radio diaries called The Unmarked Graveyard. Each story untangles mysteries about people buried in America's largest public cemetery. There were thousands of questions. Where's his family? Where's his people? Uncle Caesar was estranged from our family 40 to 50 years. You can't help but wonder what her life has been. Today, the story of a young man who was buried on Hart Island in 2017. He had been dead for months. The city hadn't figured out his name. But at the time he was buried, he actually had several people looking for him. He had lived two lives in different places and under different names. We begin in Inwood, Long Island, with his mom, who'd named him Neil. My name is Susan Herbert, and I'm Neil Harris's mom. I kept all of Neil's pictures and memorabilia. This is the Neil box. This is his father. I always saved the picture for Neil. Neil's father and I, unfortunately, were just a one-night stand. But things happen, and Neil happened. This was something that Neil wrote to me when he was little in school. My hero is my mom because she has always been there for me. She always brings me and my friends to Taco Bell and Pizza Hut. I remember when we didn't have a home or any money and we were living with my aunt. After a while, she got a job and we got a home. And that's why my mom is my hero. Life was good then. I would come home and make a little dinner or whatever and we'd eat and play a little bit of video games. He was fun. He was cuddly. This was him sleeping with all the dogs. And the dogs adored him. We wound up calling him Dr. Doolittle because this kid loved the animals. And then as he got older, something switched. Like if somebody flipped a switch on him. One night I heard him talking in his room and I thought, oh, he's got somebody over. So I knocked on the door and... I said, who are you talking to? The ghost. And I'm like, what ghost? And then he started fighting. And he's like, they're all over me. They're all over me. And I was in my office one day, and he came in, and he's like, ma. And he pushed me. And I went flying across the room. And he said, you don't think that I don't know you're trying to poison me? He had a glare. 
like he wanted to kill me. I was actually afraid of my son. The first time in my life. And I said, I want to have him put in a hospital for a psychiatric evaluation. He went. And I spoke to the doctor, and she said, he is schizophrenic. On medication, he's fine. She said, but he has asked to stop the medication, which is his right, and he has asked to be released. And off they sent him. He was 29 years old. I felt helpless. I felt like there was nobody there to help nobody. And then one day, he's like, I want you to drop me off at the Inwood train station. And he would sleep on the platform. When we pulled into the parking lot of the Inwood train station, he just got out, took his little backpack, threw it over his shoulder, walked away, never looked behind. And there was a cop sitting in the parking field there and I got out and I said that's my son and he wants to be here he wants to be homeless and the cop said to me and it's his right he said but we'll check up on him so I figured okay so I'll go every week and the first time we went down we looked and we did see him but he walked away from me and I was like Neil wait I just want to give you money and he stopped took the money and walked away and that was the last time I saw him My name is Joy Bergman and I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And this is my dog, JJ. JJ, let's go. Every day, JJ and I are in Riverside Park. This is the bench where we would see Stephen in all weather, all times of day. He'd always be sitting bolt upright on the bench, big canvas rucksack at his feet, same clothes, same facial expression. Yeah, JJ, you remember Stephen. I'm Billy, Billy Healy. I used to sit up at the corner there, feed my little birds. And that's when I talked to him and he told me that he was from Long Island and his name was Steven. It was like pulling teeth to get him to say anything. He was not a talker. He didn't seem to trust people much. At the time, I still wasn't sure if he was sleeping in the park because I see him sitting on the bench every day with his knapsack, but I never saw him sleep. So I called the outreach for the homeless. They went to talk to him, and they told me, Stephen doesn't want any help. It was always kind of reassuring to see him because he was such a big guy and so gentle in his presence. He was a constant presence in the park, but a mysterious one couldn't quite figure out where he was from, what he was doing here, and why he just never left. Neil Harris was last seen in Inwood, New York on December 12, 2014. He was last seen wearing a tan Carhartt jacket, black hoodie, blue jeans, tan work boots, and a backpack. If you have seen or know Neil's whereabouts, this was a missing persons flyer that we made. And that went out every week every week like clockwork on Mondays. Monday morning on every social media platform that I could get my hands on, it went out. And then a year went by. Nothing. And then another year, still nothing. 
after about maybe a year of seeing him in the park, I was going to recycle some magazines or something one day. And I said, oh, maybe I'll bring him to the guy in the park. Maybe he'd like something to look at. So I would bring him periodically bags of magazines and I would see him as I walked away, start looking through them with interest. He never said thank you. He just kind of gave me a half nod as I would approach. After seeing him for so long and seeing there were some needy things, I told him, oh, do you like pork ribs or do you like potato salad? I would ask him and he would say yes. So my wife would put something in the microwave of leftovers and I would bring him a plastic container with a fork. And when it got real cold, I brought him a winter coat. And he said, oh no, I don't want one. I have one in my pack. I said, do you like this? And I was wearing the burgundy hoodie and it had like fake fur inside or something. It was warm. And he said, yeah, I like that. So he wore it for two years that I know of. I know he died in it. My name is Jim Littlefield. I was formerly a director of security for the Trump Organization and ran security for four condominiums on Riverside Boulevard, luxury condominiums with Broadway actresses, baseball players of note. I believe it was around Easter time, early spring. I pulled up that morning and parked my car. And then I looked over and I noticed a backpack sitting on top of like a milk crate. And then I looked and I saw a person sitting down, knees bent, and his head was hunched down almost as if in contemplative prayer. I thought, ah, maybe he's asleep. You know, poor guy, I'm going to let him stay there. And I walk away and went to work. The next morning I came back to work and I saw he basically in the same position. So I kind of yelled loud, hey fella, you all right? He didn't budge. And at that point I touched him and a 70-year-old retired New York City police sergeant. I know what rigor mortis feels like, and he was in it. This guy had reached at the end of the road. I called 911. The police arrived. I was happy that I was able to do what I could do, and, and then went to work. I think I spoke to the police officer again a week or two later, and I said, did you ever identify that young man? And he says he didn't, and he didn't think anybody did at that point. It was the next day I was told they found him dead. Right away I said, was it trauma? Was he murdered? You know, was something bad done to him? And they said, absolutely no trauma. It looked like he just had a heart attack or something. After he died, people put flowers on the bench where Stephen would sit. They put signs up and cards. You know, when you live in a big city, there's the anonymity of the big city that I think we all sort of treasure. But then there are the constant presences, the people whose names you don't know, but you see them every day. The guy who sells the fruit on the corner, guy you see sweeping the sidewalk. These are people that become woven into your fabric of your experience in a neighborhood. And when one of them goes away, there is a loss. There is a loss. He was a sweet young man, and many people thought that about him. Rest in peace, Stephen.
My name is Jessica Brockington, and I'm a journalist. I was living on 70th Street. I have two little dogs, and we would walk in Riverside Park. I felt sad that he had died. I felt sad that the bench was empty. You know, maybe it's a year later, year and a half. I'm looking in a database of missing persons. And as I'm scrolling through the photos, I recognize a photo of Stephen. And I thought, holy shit, I know that person. And it's got a name attached to it. Neil Harris Jr. Our story continues with the search to find out who Neil Harris Jr. was after this break. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Thanks so much for joining us on this holiday. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Israel and Hamas are waging one of their deadliest clashes as the U.S. moves naval forces into the Mediterranean Sea. That story and much more is still to come. Partly cloudy overnight tonight, a calm night, temperatures in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunshine and clouds again, slight chance of a shower in the mid-60s. Could see more sun on Wednesday and possibly the rest of the week as well. 61 degrees in Boston at 448. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Book Festival, celebrating the power of words with 200 authors of every genre, October 14th in Copley Square. Details at bostonbookfest.org. New England Innovation Academy, preparing middle and high schoolers through human-centered design. Open house October 19th, neiacademy.org. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 450. WBUR supporters include Fresh City Kitchen, now accepting orders and helping you plan for your holiday catering needs. Learn more at freshcitykitchen.com. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. And Boston Ballet's Fall Experience, featuring four dynamic ballets, on stage now through October 15th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The operator of a popular political news site in Florida admits it's often hard to tell the journalism from the paid ads. I don't think I've ever held myself up as a journalist. I've said that I'm a publisher. He's only covering the story if you've written a check. Why is his site expanding? Also, the latest news from Israel and Gaza on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We continue now our story about a homeless man named Stephen who died in 2017 and who New York City was not able to identify. Before the break, you heard local journalist Jessica Brockington stumbling on Stephen's photo in a missing persons database next to a name she didn't recognize Neil Harris Jr. So Jessica Googled the name, found a Facebook page where a woman named Susan was posting every Monday. Monday, July 16th, still missing, still praying. If seen, please tell him he is missing. Monday, July 23rd, 2018, still missing, still praying. Monday, August 6th, still missing, still praying. Help me locate my son. When Jessica saw these posts, she reached out to tell Susan that a homeless person in her neighborhood had died and that she thought it might be her son, her Susan. So Jessica called me and she said, okay, so there's this guy that's been sitting in Riverside Park. And I'm like, Riverside Park? 
Where's that? She said, in Manhattan. It's on the west side. I'm like, are you kidding me? Neil would never. He was petrified of the city. So she said, who's Neil? Then she's like, oh, that's right. I keep forgetting. She said, I know this guy is Stephen. That's what he called himself, right? And I'm like, Stephen? She said, yeah, I'm just going to tell you what I got from him. She said, I would walk through the park. I have two dogs. And they would immediately run to him. And he just reached down and started petting them and kind of smiled and wasn't necessarily smiling at me, but was focused on the dogs. And I'm like, that's got to be Neil. And then I'm like arguing within my own head, my head, you know, saying no, no, no. And then saying maybe, maybe, no, 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 no. And then I sent her the medical examiner's photo of her son after his autopsy. And the picture came up. He was more like disheveled. I could tell like he hadn't shaven in a while. But I know my son. And I knew as soon as I saw that picture, that was my son. I felt like I couldn't catch my breath. He died from an ulcer. That's what they have down on the death certificate. Dear friends all together and dear neighbors, his real name was Neil. We in the neighborhood only knew him as Stephen. That was his adopted name. There's a church on 74th Street, a community church. The pastors there and the congregation there also knew Stephen. And they decided that they would have a service for him. Susan and her family came, a bunch of his friends, and then all these people from the neighborhood came. I walked in and looking at all these people, I'm like, I don't know these people. Neil didn't know these people. And I said it to my sister. I said, you know, Neil didn't know them. And she looked at me and she said, well, obviously he did. Listen to what they're saying. I talked to him at least two, three times a week. When I didn't see him, I'd stop and ask him, where's Stephen? Because he was always there. Children came up to me and said, oh, we, we knew him. We said hello to him. It was after Neil no longer occupied this bench that we realized in the neighborhood how much he had become a part of the fabric of our lives. And my husband nudged me and he said, get up there and say something. And I'm like, I don't know what to say. I'm not good at this. <laughs> not good. But I have to tell you, I said it from what I first heard from Jessica. You're all angels. Every one of you. You watched over my son. You took care of him. And that was all I ever prayed for for four years. There are people that really, really care. Even if it's a stranger, they care. That's phenomenal. That was the only good feeling I came out of there with. Because other than that, it was not good feelings. I was hurt that I was left out of his life as his mother. I kept saying, 
I did something wrong. What did I do? Or what didn't I do? Everybody kept saying, well, at least now you have closure. There's no closure. I don't understand what people think when they say, well, at least now you know. I'd rather not know. I'd rather keep on looking. This is Susan the company, yes? Okay, yeah. This is um, the market right here where your loved one is buried. Oh. So this is Neil? Yeah, that's Neil. Here I am at Neil's graveside, finally. I still have your PlayStation, Neil. I love you. I miss you. When they first told me that he was here in Hard Island, I was pretty upset. I was like, oh, disgusting. How could, oh my God. There are other bodies also in there with him. A bunch of them stacked together. And that's the only thing that's a little unsettling because I worry about, is his neighbor a friendly neighbor? I know these things sound crazy, but these are the things that go through my mind. So yeah, I thought about, no, I gotta get him out of there. But then I remembered his father is also buried on Hard Island. Buried down the block a little bit, I guess. He died and the family couldn't afford to have a proper funeral or anything. Neil was only nine and he did always say he wanted to come here. Neil always wanted a relationship with his father. And I'm, my hope is that they're together now and they're developing a relationship and they're hanging out somewhere together. The trees are beautiful. There was water all around. It's a very quiet, serene spot. And that was Neil. He was very quiet in life. So yeah, this is where he will remain. That was Susan Hurlbert remembering her son, Neil Harris Jr. Our story was produced by Elisa Escarce of Radio Diaries. This was the first story in a series from Radio Diaries about people buried on Hart Island, America's largest public cemetery. It's called the Unmarked Graveyard. And just a note about today's program, we are continuing to track our top story as Israel has ordered a full siege of Gaza following attacks over the weekend by Palestinian militants. Stay with us. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest, Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From Drexel University, whose cooperative education program works to empower students to explore future careers and discover their ideal profession before graduation. This is experiential education. More at drexel.edu. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. A few shots of sunshine, lots of clouds collecting. Overnight tonight should be partly cloudy and calm in the mid-40s. And for tomorrow, partly sunny skies once again. A slight chance of a shower around noontime with highs in the mid-60s. 61 degrees now in Boston at 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. And Merrimack Repertory Theater with Gaslight, a new adaptation of the gripping psychological thriller, opening October 18th. Tickets at MRT.org. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. has sent naval forces to the Mediterranean after Hamas militants launched a surprise attack on Israel in the current moment to be quite important in terms of what actually happens and how this unfolds on the ground. More on the U.S. response coming up. It's Monday, October 9th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a Swampscott native now living in Israel is trying to stay safe amid the rocket fire. At the same time, he's hardened by the ways Israelis are supporting the troops. I'm seeing friends baking hundreds of cookies to deliver to soldiers so they can have something nice to eat. I'm seeing efforts of taxi drivers to drive uh, soldiers who have been called up to military bases for free, of course. Also an eventful Chicago marathon. These stories and much more coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Following an attack by Hamas that has left at least 900 Israelis dead, the country is vowing to lay total siege to Gaza. Israel formally declared war over the weekend, with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vowing to destroy the Palestinian militants' military and governing capabilities. Among the dead are at least 11 Americans. The U.S. has pledged to support Israel, sending a carrier group to the region. Meanwhile, Palestinian health ministry officials say more than 680 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli airstrikes in Gaza, many of them children. Already more than 120,000 Palestinians have fled their homes or been displaced in Gaza, many now living in UN-run schools. Israel says the Gaza Strip, home to 2.3 million people, will be under complete closure, with no electricity, food or fuel being delivered. Gaza resident Roba Akila says she's nervous about running low on medication for her 80-year-old father and food. And this is going to be really a difficult thing for us as from now on we we are living in the unknown. We don't know if we are going to get a next meal. Gaza's residents under a 16-year blockade mostly cannot leave the territory. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Israel. The death toll in Afghanistan following a severe earthquake has now risen to at least 2,000. The 6.3 magnitude quake flattened entire villages and search efforts are continuing for more victims and possible survivors. The epicenter of the earthquake hit a densely populated area in Herat and has been followed by strong aftershocks. A senior Taliban team is visiting the area and said it plans to deliver immediate relief assistance. 
Robert Kennedy Jr., who'd been mounting a long-shot challenge to President Biden, is now running for president as an independent. As NPR's Tamara Keith explains, Kennedy could play the role of a disruptor. Kennedy made his announcement at a rally in Philadelphia. I'm here to declare myself an independent candidate. Kennedy, who is known for spreading anti-vaccine conspiracy theories, has leveraged his famous last name for attention while simultaneously slamming political elites. I haven't made this decision lightly. It's very painful for me to let go of the party of my uncles, my father. The Republican Party responded, calling Kennedy a Democrat in independence clothing. There is some indication that as an independent, he could siphon away more support from Trump than from Biden. Tamara Keith, NPR News. When the interest rate setting Federal Reserve meets next week, at least some analysts expect the body to leave interest rates unchanged. That expectation based in part on higher borrowing costs brought on by a surge in long-term mortgage interest rates. On Wall Street, the Dow rose 197 points. The Nasdaq closed up 52 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Towns and cities across the state today marked Indigenous Peoples Day with gatherings and celebrations. As Solon Kelleher reports, members of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe gathered in Newton for a day of music, food, and culture. As Indigenous Peoples Day Newton began its celebrations, smoke from a ceremonial fire drifted through the cool fall breeze. For Mashpee Wampanoag Chief Earl Mills Jr., today is a celebration of survival. We saw hundreds of thousands of people obliterated by intentional disease, and then warfare, and then uh, slavery. All those atrocities that have happened Despite all that, we're still here, and we come and we celebrate that. This was the third year that Newton has held its Indigenous Peoples Day event. Volunteers estimated that with hundreds in attendance, it was the largest celebration so far. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. Newly released data show the wealthiest zip codes in Massachusetts are seeing more green. The Boston Business Journal reports median household incomes in places such as Sudbury, Dunstable, Lexington, and Manchester-by-the-Sea saw annual salary increases of ten dollars to $20,000. Dover and parts of Newton tied for the wealthiest communities with median household incomes of more than $250,000. And a popular North Shore attraction won't open this year due to this summer's heavy rainfall. Colby Farm in Newbury is known for its sunflower fields and is a popular spot for photographers. The farm has posted on social media that the 30 or more inches of rain kept the sunflowers from thriving. In the forecast, no real rain. Overnight tonight should be dry, partly cloudy, temperatures in the mid-40s. And then for tomorrow, maybe a shower sometime around noontime. Otherwise, partly sunny skies should have highs in the mid-60s. Brighter sunshine ahead on Wednesday, still in the mid-60s, though. 61 degrees in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Israel and Hamas are waging one of their deadliest clashes ever 
And there's a lot more going on as well. The U.S. is moving naval forces into the Mediterranean Sea. At the same time, there is already debate raging on why Israel was not able to detect preparations for such a huge attack or able to defend against it. We're going to explore these developments with two NPR correspondents. Tom Bowman is in the studio with me. He covers the Pentagon. Hey there. Hey, Mary Louise. And Greg Myrie, our national security correspondent. Hey, Greg. Hi, Mary Louise. Tom Bowman, you kick us off. I just said this is a fight. This is a war between Israel and Hamas. Why is the U.S. sending an aircraft carrier to the Med? Well, the Pentagon said it's partly a show of force and partly to prevent these attacks from widening in the region. Now, besides the carrier USS Gerald Ford, you also have Aegis missile cruisers, which have ballistic missile capabilities. Mary Louise, so they could be used, uh, its radar capabilities, for example, to prevent Hezbollah, the Iranian-supported fighters, uh, in Lebanon from firing missiles into Israel. Mm. Also, dozens of American attack aircraft are being sent to bases in the region, also as a deterrent, especially sending the message to Iran not to get involved. Now, it's possible, of course, in the midst of these Hamas attacks, you could see Iranian militias take advantage of what's going on in Israel to hit U.S. forces in Syria, U.S. facilities in Iraq. We don't know how this will play out. It's just getting started. Everything you just described, Tom, is about the U.S. sending a message, you just said, sending a show of force to support an ally, Israel. The U.S. is not likely, not hoping to get involved in this fighting, but it is providing other kinds of support to Israel? No, that's right. You won't be seeing U.S. boots on the ground. Instead, you'll see more material support for Israel. Pentagon and state officials had a conference call with Congress last night. Officials said Israel needs more air defenses, precision-guided munitions, as well as artillery rounds. Now, that all sounds to me like this will escalate. Israel seems poised for a ground offensive into Gaza, one of the most densely populated places on Earth with two million people. Now, as you know, urban warfare is the most horrific kind of, of a fight. And given the density, it could be some of the worst ever. You have to go building the building and clearing operations and then hold these buildings. And the defenders, in this case Hamas, have the upper hand, able to shoot at you from high rises, scoot through tunnels and sewers. In the middle of this, you have more than 100 hostages, not to mention civilians who be caught in the crossfire. Yeah, this is Israelis and, and other nationalities who are now being held in Gaza. Okay, Greg Myrie, jump in from, I know you're joining us from Sea Island, Georgia, this big annual conference underway of current and former national security officials who I'm guessing we're expecting to be focused on Ukraine. What are you hearing about the Middle East? Well, I'm hearing language like cataclysmic, shocking, unprecedented. These officials, particularly the retired officials who can speak more freely, stress a couple points in particular. They're really at a loss as to why Israel's domestic intelligence service, Shin Bet, didn't seem to know about the biggest attack that Hamas has ever launched. Um, Israel constantly has drones over Gaza. It's considered capable of intercepting almost any phone call in the territory. It has powerful cyber tools and a large number of Palestinians who, who work for Israel as informants. Um, in addition, the Israeli military was just clearly unprepared for such a large-scale infiltration. This weekend was a holiday in Israel, and uh, recent unrest has mostly been in the West Bank. So it seems Israel was distracted and wasn't keeping its usual close watch on Gaza. 
I will point out the obvious, which is that U.S. intelligence is also supposed to be keeping a close eye on Hamas, and it doesn't appear that they knew this was coming either, at least that has been made public. Was this also a U.S. intelligence failure? I'm not sure I would characterize it quite that way. You know, Gaza is Israel's backyard. It's a place uh, that Israel watches or should be watching nonstop because an attack can come at any moment. Uh, the U.S. does have a close intelligence relationship with Israel, but this is more related to the broader region. Israel really takes care of Gaza. Speaking of the region, one more to you, Greg, which is Iran and what role Iran may or may not have played. What do we know? U.S. and Israeli officials say that at this point, they've seen no evidence of direct Iranian involvement in the Hamas attack. Here's Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer speaking on NPR earlier today. For decades, uh, Iran has provided financial support, uh, has provided weapons, has provided training to Hamas, has helped build the entity that ended up uh, crossing into Israel. And uh, so Iran is definitely in the picture of these events. That said, neither we nor uh, apparently the Israeli uh, Defense Forces has any specific information about Iran's direct involvement in the last couple of days' attacks. So Iran's leaders have celebrated these Hamas attacks on Israel as they've done in the past. And you can be sure that U.S. intelligence is trying to figure out if Iran had a more explicit role. Israel is certainly doing the same. And on questions like this, the U.S. and Israel are likely to compare notes. So, Mary Louise, it's important to note that in the call with lawmakers last night, there was no discussion of Iran outside of longstanding material support to Hamas. There will be a classified briefing with Congress on Wednesday. And, of course, lawmakers will keep pressing on Iran. And if it played any sort of a detailed planning role for this attack that goes beyond mere historic support. You mentioned Congress, and I'm thinking about, as you as you well know, because you've covered the wars in Iraq, in Afghanistan, there's this long U.S. involvement in Middle East wars. Are you hearing any appetite on the U.S. side to get involved in another regional conflict? Absolutely not. I think the U.S. had enough in Iraq and clearly left there and has a few hundred troops there, but it clearly does not want to get involved in another Middle East war. Now, you could see the U.S. get involved more again if their Iranian militias started attacking U.S. troops in Syria or U.S. facilities in Iraq. But again, no indication or no interest in getting involved deeply in any kind of Mideast war. Greg Myrie, you get the last word. What are you watching for these next few days? Well, as, as Tom noted earlier, the big question is whether Israel will send in ground troops to Gaza, something they've only done reluctantly and briefly in recent years, but it is looking more likely. In this dangerous, dangerous urban landscape, the Israelis really risk ambushes and, and other kinds of just very difficult terrain. But now Israel has declared a complete siege of Gaza, cutting electricity, water, food, fuel. This certainly looks like it's setting the stage for a major ground invasion. All right, and we will be tracking this story all through the evening. Keep listening. We've been speaking with National Security Correspondent Greg Myrie and Pentagon Correspondent Tom Bowman. Thanks to you both. You're welcome. Thank you, Mary Louise. (music) 
So yesterday I ran the Army 10-miler here in Washington, and creaky 50-something-year-old knees aside, I was pretty happy with my time, definitely happy to have finished. Well, it turns out you can file this in the complete slouch department compared to the feat that Kelvin Kiptum pulled off yesterday in Chicago. We're going to get ourselves a new world record. He recognizes it. He's waving to the crowd. Kisses. An amazing effort by Kelvin Kiptum for a new In only his third marathon ever, Kiptum shattered the world record by more than half a minute. He ran 26.2 miles in two hours and 35 seconds. Well, here to talk us through this is Scott Douglas, contributor to Runner's World and co-author of Advanced Marathoning. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So I want to put this in perspective. He ran, he was running a four minute and 36 second mile, and he did this over and over 26 times for two hours straight. Just to note, most very fit people in the world cannot run that for a single mile. Forget 26. How, how mind boggling is this? It's um, even more mind boggling than than even maybe what you just said, because most fit people couldn't run one lap of a standard track at that pace. No. And this was his third marathon. What else should we know about him? Uh, Well, so he's really interesting because he's 23 years old, which in marathoning terms is traditionally pretty young. But what he's done is he sort of skipped the part where you uh, race on the track internationally at 5,000 meters, 10,000 meters for a few years and then move up to the marathon. And Kelvin Kiptum is an example of somebody who is showing that maybe in this new generation of super fast marathons, you might want to skip that part and just (laughs) go right to the roads. You just said something about how we're in this era of super fast marathons. I will note the women's marathon world record. That just fell a couple of weeks ago. which prompts me to ask about shoes. <laughs> for those who, who don't follow what's going on with, with running shoes for, for long distances, just explain. Sure. So starting in roughly 2016, we call them super shoes, and they are thought to um, help people run a lot faster at the same effort level. These are totally legal. They are perfectly legal, yes. A lot of people probably in your race yesterday wore them. And they would probably today, they would say, my legs aren't as beat up after running in those shoes as they are in the shoes that I ran in 10 years ago. And so if you're running, you know, the amount of mileage that the top people are running, that might mean that you can train a little bit harder than you were back in the day when the sh- when you were sort of more beat up from, you know, the, the non-super shoes. Do we know what Kelvin Kiptum wants to do next now that he's shattered the world record in his third marathon? No, and it's really interesting because, you know, the person whose record he broke, Elliot Kipchoge, has won the last two Olympic marathons. Both are from Kenya. Um, it'll be fascinating to see if both can get named to the Kenyan Olympic team for next summer and both want to run it. Um, I could see where Kelvin Kiptum might very well I want to say, no, I'd rather be the first person to break two hours. Yeah. You can have the Olympic title. Scott Douglas, contributing writer for Runner's World, talking about the new world record just set by Kelvin Kiptum and inspiring me to update my running shoes. Scott Douglas, thank you. (laughs) Thanks for having me. It's All Things Considered 
from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this holiday afternoon. The Health Ministry Director General in Gaza says his hospital was already short on medical supplies and medications. Now it's even worse as military strikes Israel is launching after the Hamas attack on the country have killed hundreds of people in Gaza. That story and much more coming up. WBUR supporters include Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. Wall Street was open for the holiday. The Dow and S&P each rose about six-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq rose four-tenths of a percent. A new report shows three New England colleges alum earned among the highest median salaries 10 years after they graduated. MIT and Princeton tied for the top spot from the data firm Payscale's list with average earnings of $189,400. Babson College ranked sixth at just over $175,000, and Dartmouth tied Colgate for seventh at just over $173,000. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Spalding Rehabilitation. For expert care, turn to Spalding. With three inpatient hospitals, a skilled nursing facility, and outpatient centers across Eastern Mass, Spalding is a world leader in advanced rehab treatment and research. U.S. News ranks Spalding number two for rehab care in the country. SpaldingRehab.org. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Partly cloudy tonight in mid-40s, tomorrow partly sunny with temperatures again in the mid-60s. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, Supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at mott.org. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. $12 billion. $12 $12 billion. According to the Department of Education, that is the funding shortfall between historically black land-grant colleges and their predominantly white counterparts in 16 states. By law, they are supposed to be funded equitably. The gap is sparking protests, also sparking lawsuits. Meanwhile, calls to write decades of underfunding of historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, at the state level coincide with a rise in federal funding. I want to bring Tony Allen into the conversation. He is president of Delaware State University, which is an HBCU. He also chairs President Biden's board of advisors on HBCUs. President Allen, welcome to All Things Considered. Hey, Mary Louise, how you doing? I am doing all right. I am wondering how all this is playing out on your campus. I noticed that happily Delaware is not on the list of states where major funding discrepancies have been documented, but I'm guessing your students and faculty are watching all this pretty closely? 
Uh, they are. And I would tell you, if, if you put this in context, I think the report you're referring to covers from 1987 to 2020. If, it, if you really included the, the whole of our existence, uh, the disparities are still significant. Uh, but we are making good progress in that regard. And for my sister institutions, uh, that $13 billion is a real number, it has meaningful impact on their campuses every day. Well, just help me understand that when you say this is a real number, um, we were reporting on this program last week, for example, about the shortfall at Tennessee State. The federal government says Tennessee, the state, owes $2.1 billion to the historically black university. Just whether it's at Tennessee or somewhere else, what kind of things can that amount of money buy? Uh, well, you know, you can do all kinds of things uh, as it relates to uh, recruitment, and that's both of faculty, uh, staff, and students. Uh, think about new classroom space, uh, new living spaces, uh, new laboratory renovations. All that really goes to who you want to come to the campus. We want them to come to facilities uh, that have best-in-class opportunities. It's already true that HBCUs do more with less. We now say boldly that less is no longer acceptable. No. Meanwhile, as I mentioned, uh, President Biden's administration has made historic investments in HBCUs to the tune of billions since 2021. Is that money being distributed, being spent to address some of the priorities you just outlined? So no, President. And American history has given more to HBCUs so quickly uh, with a clear vision for doing more. That number is about $7 billion just in his time in office thus far. $3.6 billion of that went to the American uh, Rescue Plan. $1.6 billion of that money went for loan forgiveness for about 45 public and private HBCUs. So we feel very good about what the president has already done uh, and equally proud about what we believe he will be continuing to commit to. As backdrop to everything you and I are talking about is, of course, the Supreme Court decision this year to overturn affirmative action, which is raising all kinds of questions about how that may gut race-conscious admissions. Do you expect to see more students looking to HBCUs? Are you expecting enrollment bumps? Uh, we've seen enrollment bumps uh, in Delaware State University for sure, uh, but in a number of our sister institutions. And I can tell you that really began uh, in earnest uh, right after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. In 2020, the yeah. Race, yeah, the, really the racial unrest that proceeded after all of that. And uh, one pandemic, as I've often said, exposed another, and everybody was watching. And uh, I think students of color have taken the opportunity as they think about higher education to take another look at historically black colleges and universities where they don't have to apologize for who they are, where they come from, or what they look like. So while I am very unhappy uh, with the Supreme Court decision, uh, we also want to be prepared uh, for the continued uh, bumps we're going to see in enrollment. That's Tony Allen, president of Delaware State University and chairman of the Biden administration's Board of Advisors on Historically Black Colleges and Universities. Tony Allen, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. 
Today's story comes from Lauren Passell. In January 2015, Passell slipped and fell on an icy New York City street. She had been training for a marathon and had noticed her hip was sore, but figured it was from all the running. It turns out it was a hairline stress fracture. So when I fell on the ice that day, it completely broke my hip. I remember seeing some people come to me, but one woman came to me that changed my life, and her name was Sharon. And, you know, she was about my age, and all I remember is seeing her kind face all bundled up with a big hat and scarf, and she pushed everyone out of the way and said, I've got this. She helped me up, and I was like, I have to go get more coffee. I have to go to work. And she was like, you're hurt. And I didn't even know that I was hurt. But the second she said that, I realized that I couldn't even stand up and that I was in a ton of pain. So she said, I'm going to help you get a cab. And I said, no, you don't have to do that. I'm sure you have places to be. Please don't. I can do it. And honestly, the second time she said, no, I'm getting you a cab, I thought, oh, thank God. I, I don't think I can do this alone. So the cab came and she said, you know what? I'm going to get in the cab with you and go with you. And I said, please, Sharon, you have to go to work. This is ridiculous. I can do this by myself. But in my head, I'm thinking, God, please have her get in the cab with me. I can't do this alone. She gets in the cab with me. And she says exactly where to take me, which is NYU Langone, to the emergency drop-off, which I never would have known to say that. So we pull up, and she says, you know what? I'm going to go get the wheelchair for you, and I'll wheel you in. And I'm like, please don't do that. You've done so much already. And in my head, I'm like, I hope she comes with me because I can't even sit up. And she wheels me in. And then I say, you have to go to work now. But in my head, I'm like, please stay with me. I'm so scared. And she stayed with me. She helped me with my paperwork. She helped me go to the bathroom. And she put me in good hands. And they said, This is a real emergency. We have to operate now or she could die because of uh, blood clots. If I could talk to Sharon right now, I would say thank you, Sharon, for saving my life. And I hope one day I can pick someone up the sidewalk just like you did for me. Lauren Purcell lives in New York City. After her injury, doctors told her she would not be able to run again. But a year after she broke her hip, Purcell came in first in the Disney Princess Half Marathon. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The holiday ends pretty much the way it began in terms of the forecast, dry and coolish. 61 degrees now should fall as far as the mid-40s overnight tonight. Tomorrow, partly sunny skies. The chance of a shower late morning and early afternoon should have highs in the mid-60s. And then for Wednesday, brighter sunshine still in the mid-60s could see the sunshine return for the rest of the work week. 
Listen to WBUR anywhere you venture this fall. Download or update the WBUR app now and tap to listen live. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for spring. BGSP.edu. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. The operator of a popular political news site in Florida admits it's often hard to tell the journalism from the paid ads. I don't think I've ever held myself up as a journalist. I've said that I'm a publisher. He's only covering the story if you've written a check. Why is his site expanding? Also, the latest news from Israel and Gaza on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel has only just begun to strike Hamas and that what his country does to its enemies in the coming days will reverberate for generations. He made the comments in an address to the nation today as Israel continued airstrikes on the Gaza Strip and amassed troops for what could be a land invasion. NPR's Ayo Batrawi has more on the situation in Gaza. The Gaza Strip right now is being um, under attack in retaliation, Um, but unfortunately this is an area with 2.3 million Uh, people, and most of, almost everyone is a civilian, and, um, you know, already 120,000 people have left their homes. Many are in UN shelters, hoping that that will will save them, although there have been times where schools have been bombed. We've already seen mosques bombed today, high-rise towers taken Mm -hmm. out. Sometimes there are warnings for the neighborhood, but a lot of times there are not. NPR's Aya Batrawi. The death toll on both sides continues to climb with more than 1,500 killed, thousands injured. At least 11 Americans are among the dead. And two members of Congress were among those sheltering in place when the attack took place. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker and New York Representative Dan Goldman are now back home. NPR's Rachel Treisman has more. The lawmakers traveled to Israel separately and were in different cities when the violence broke out on Saturday. Booker was in Jerusalem in advance of an economic summit. He was jogging in the old city when staff texted him to get back to his hotel. Goldman had traveled with his family to Tel Aviv for a bar mitzvah. They were woken up by sirens and spent most of the day sheltering in a stairwell. Both flew back to the U.S. on Sunday. Many other Americans weren't as lucky. Major airlines in the U.S., as well as Europe and Asia, have suspended flights in and out of Israel due to the hostilities. Rachel Treisman, NPR News. Wall Street higher by the closing bell, the Dow up 197. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Donald Trump campaigned in New Hampshire today with three and a half months to go until the state's Republican presidential primary. As WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports, the former president, who faces multiple criminal charges, reiterated some of his long-held grievances. Despite facing more than 90 criminal charges, including allegedly violating national security laws and subverting democracy, in polls, Trump is running well ahead of his rivals for the Republican presidential nomination. Speaking to supporters in Wolfboro, Trump said the charges amount to election interference and joked about his infamous mugshot following his arrest this summer. Me, I got arrested. Can you believe it? That's the mugshot. I never thought I'd be taken. I wonder what my father and mother are saying as they look down. My son just uh, took, like, mugshots weren't supposed to be in the family. 
Trump repeated his claim that the 2020 election was stolen, which is not true. He also bragged about being indicted more times than Al Capone, which is true. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks in Wolfboro, New Hampshire. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is dropping his bid for the Democratic nomination for president today. Instead, he plans to run as an independent. He says Americans want the vitriol in politics to end. And Fitchburg State University police are searching for a suspect after a student reported a sexual assault on the camp- in the campus library. University police say the person reportedly assaulted a female student and may have approached another female student recently, or perhaps more. He is described as being about 19 years old and 5 foot 5 with a slim build. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen. With a goal of delivering holiday catering, everyone will keep talking about. FreshCityKitchen.com And Associated Industries of Massachusetts, hosting a virtual discussion on DEI programs in the workplace Wednesday at 10 a.m. Register at aimnet.org. Some fair weather clouds around, a partly cloudy and calm night tonight. Temperatures in the mid-40s pull up the blanket. Tomorrow, sunshine and clouds again. Slight chance of a shower around noontime. Temperatures in the mid-60s. We could see more sun on Wednesday and maybe Thursday as well. Should be stuck in the 60s. 61 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We are continuing to follow the situation in Israel and Gaza after the attack on Israel by the Palestinian militant group Hamas over the weekend in an unprecedented cross-border raid over Israel's southern border from Gaza. Hundreds of Israelis were killed. Retaliatory Israeli missile strikes on the Gaza Strip have killed hundreds of Palestinians, displaced thousands more. Israel's Prime Minister, Ben Netanyahu says his country is at war. Citizens have been warned to leave as Israel prepares for a possible ground invasion. Although it's unclear how people could leave, Gaza has been under a blockade imposed by Israel and Egypt for more than a decade because it is ruled by Hamas. Well, all through our program today, we're hearing from a variety of voices on the ground, including Dr. Medhat Abbas, who works at the Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza. He is also Gaza's current Health Ministry Director General. This is applying too much pressure on our health professionals in the hospitals. He said that before this weekend, his hospital already had a shortage of medicine and supplies. Now it is worse. Israel has said as part of its siege of Gaza, it would cut off fuel, electricity and food. With this shortage now, we have only electricity for four hours every day. In hospitals, we rely on standby generators consuming a lot of fuels. At the same time, these rails are closing borders, so we cannot have extra fuel to run those generators. Uh, Again, our capacity is very limited, especially in the intensive care units, operation rooms, and the emergency rooms. 
the situation will be very hard for our staff. There's no safe route for the people to move inside Gaza Strip. Nobody knows because sometimes the attacks are random. Dr. Abbas told NPR that several ambulances had been attacked and their hospital has already lost five colleagues, including one ambulance driver. They said we have not started yet. We have not started yet. If after all of that they have not started, then what will happen when they really, I don't know, are they planning for a big massacre in Gaza? I don't know. But they are only civilians, I mean, who will pay. And he worries they will run out of supplies completely. We're consuming now in one day what we ordinarily consume in a month, unless these borders are opened at once for the fuel to run the generators and for medications, medical supplies to come at once to Gaza. There will be a collapse of the health system. I assure you, there will be a collapse in the health system. When asked how he is doing personally, Dr. Abbas sighed. Ah, it's pressure. It's too much pressure. Too much pressure. Everybody's expecting you to help at a time where you cannot help yourself. And then he told us that even with everything on his shoulders, one of the lives that is weighing heavily on him right now is his family cat. We have a cat. It's called Jonko. It's a very nice cat. A white cat, big size like a tiger. You know, it is scared. Whenever they attack, when he hears the bounce, you know, he starts to crawl on the ground, shivering, and hide under the bed. I tried to explain to him, but I couldn't. I don't know his language. I mean, what could I say to him? We tried to calm him down. We pet on his head and we say, please wait. It will be okay. You will be okay. He doesn't want to eat. He doesn't want even to drink. And he's just shivering. It's a cat. I mean, he doesn't understand what's going on around us. But uh, so we think if they attack our house, they decide us that we have to flee our house. What? We, how can we take it? It will run away. Shall we? Shall we go and take it with us, or shall we leave it inside the home? So we are thinking of that now. This is one of our plans in our home: how to save the life of this cat. And I hope it will stay with us. I hope nothing will happen to it. Uh, me too. That's Dr. Medhat Abbas, who works at Al Shifa Hospital in Gaza. He spoke with NPR's Majd Al Wahidi. In the U.S., it is now common to hear or see acknowledgments that indigenous peoples are the original stewards of the land. A new art installation argues that Americans should go further and start to give that land back. NPR's Jennifer Venasco went to Long Island City in Queens, New York, to see what the artist had to say. On an empty lot next to an elevated train line is a tall, very philosophical tree talking about the first European settlers in America. Inspired, fascinated, and terrified by the freedoms they saw in indigenous communities. The tree is talking to a very large beaver. They're both animatronic, think Disney World. They have strangely lifelike eyes and mouths that move. You know, it's almost adorable seeing those pilgrims try to wrap their brains around what liberty really meant. The beaver and tree are surrounded by colorful posters and four areas with screens playing documentary and mockumentary films. It's all part of a tongue-in-cheek art installation called The World's Unfair from three indigenous artists with one goal, to convince folks to give land back to the peoples who once occupied it. I was skeptical at first. I thought, no one's going to return New York City. 
but giving it back wholesale is not what these artists have in mind. One block at a time. That's Zach Khalil, a filmmaker and artist. He's Chippewa. From Bawateng, or so-called Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, based currently in Lenapahoking, or so-called New York. He says giving land back is not something that could happen, it's something that's happening. The artists are just drawing attention to it. It just requires people to believe in it. In North America, it turns out a lot of people do. I'm Kimber Gow, and I am the mayor of Eureka. That's Eureka, Oregon. This is from one of the films in the installation. We had a horrific history with our tribes, as do many communities. And I'm so proud of our city that we were able to make a small amends by returning um, an island where a massacre, horrible massacre, happened. You heard that? Eureka gave back an island to indigenous groups. Oakland, California gave them five acres. Watching testimonial after testimonial normalizes the idea. This is not that new. After all, people give property to the Nature Conservancy or will it to their alma maters. This is along those lines. Zach's brother, artist Adam Khalil. We started this project three or four years ago and started noticing there's an exponential rise in people who voluntarily give land back. The Khalils and their compatriot Jackson Pollis. He's Clinkett from Alaska originally. They hope that the carnival nature of the installation will draw non-native people in. Adam says this is one of the important functions of art to help people imagine a different future. I would just encourage people if they have the means and ability to give it back and if they don't maybe help indigenous people take it back. He means it. They're trying this to recruit you to, to be an accomplice. Video. We help you find, buy, and give back real estate. Using the, the language process. of marketing and get-rich-quick schemes. Get in on the ground floor of a growing and vibrant movement. Undermine the very concept of property. It sounds easy when it's put like that. So hurry up. Give it back. Let it go. Let's the three go. artists are part of what I would call an artist collective, but what they say is a public secret society. New Red Order. Adam Cleel. I actually don't know who started New Red Order. I was recruited into it. Wait, really? Because I was really under the impression that it like started off with the three of you and then it... It started with the Boston Tea Party. That's when the Sons of Liberty dressed as Mohawks to disguise their identities. His point is that Americans have been fascinated with Native American culture for over 250 years. They romanticize it. The artists say, okay, you want to join together with us? We'll welcome you. With one caveat. Hey, do you got land? Got land? Like got milk. Jennifer Vadasco, NPR News, New York. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Multi-hyphenate musician Doja Cat released her fourth studio album, Scarlet, last month. Jason King, dean of USC's Thornton School of Music and NPR Music contributor, says the rap-focused LP is a sharp turn for the pop star, who has made herself a regular on the Billboard Hot 100 chart with feature-heavy neo-disco and Afrobeat hits. no cameos, there's no features. Her typical producer, Dr. Luke, isn't on the album. Instead, the album is a throwback to the sound of the 90s alternative East Coast hip-hop scene. And it becomes a kind of showcase for her emceeing skills. It's much more hard-edged and grittier than we've heard from Doja Cat in a long time. Yeah, trick, I said what I said. I'd rather be famous instead. I let all that get to my head. I don't care. 
Paint the Town Red is one of my favorite songs. It actually went to number one. And the song, it coasts along on this eerie, looping, slightly jazzy sample of Dionne Warwick's Walk On By. They just want my love and my energy. You can't talk no without penalties. If you suffer me, I'm going to glow up one more time. Trust me, I have magical foresight. And the chorus is Doja Cat doing what Doja Cat does. She's celebrating being rich, being famous, refusing to back down from her haters. I said what I said. I'd rather be famous instead. I let all that get to my head. I don't care. I paint the town red. And one of the things I found really interesting about Paint the Town Red is the fact that she's focused on the color red and she's referring to herself as the devil. And part of the reason for that is because she's basically trolling all the online haters who disparaged her by calling her demonic. Basically, her music is an outlet for her to double down. She's painting the town red because she's trying to out-troll the trolls online. Agora Hills is my favorite song in the album. It demonstrates that Doja Cat is not always just about being belligerent or being kind of venomous to her haters or conjuring all this occult imagery, but she has a lot of different sides and the album has a lot of different sides. So Agora Hills is a kind of quiet storm song. It's hazy, it's sensual, and it's her singing and rapping. Baby, we could just ride on our enemies. They all want to know how you get to me. Let them feel how they feel, let me feel the scenes. Cause this type of love's the epitome. What I love about the song is that it's way more estrogen than it is testosterone. This is what she would call her softy side. It's her singing about love, about romance. And, you know, there's something strategic about that too. It's the right tempo and it's the right groove to make it a perfect clip to go viral on TikTok. And Doja Cat, at the end of the day, is nothing if not a strategist and somebody who's really pragmatic about what it takes to go number one. And you can never hold her back. That was NPR music contributor and dean of USC's Thornton School of Music, Jason King. Doja Cat's new album, Scarlet, is out now. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. And a pretty nice holiday today. Overnight tonight should have some fair weather clouds around. Should be calm. Temperatures in the mid-40s. And for tomorrow, not bad. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Slight chance of a shower around noontime. But we should have a mix of sunshine and clouds once again. Could see more sunshine on Wednesday and possibly through the remainder of the week with temperatures in the mid-60s. Every time there's a mass shooting in America, the question arises again, why can't we make it stop? The Gun Machine podcast from WBUR explores guns, government, and the Massachusetts roots of the glut of guns in the country. Listen and follow The Gun Machine on your podcast app. This is 90.9 WBUR. It is 61 degrees in Boston at 549. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at renewalbyandersoncares.com. 
Salem State University School of Graduate Studies, hosting an in-person open house October 14th, 8 to noon, salemstate.edu graduate, and Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of Black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. Among the Americans who have witnessed the brutal attack over the weekend on Israel is Andrew Jacobson. He's a native of Swampscott and graduated a few years ago from Brandeis. He lives in Jerusalem and runs a marketing agency. But he was visiting a friend in Tel Aviv on Saturday when Hamas militants launched a massive attack from Gaza. Jacobson and his friend had gone to services at a synagogue. He told us today about something that happened there that was bracing. During the Torah reading, they called up a soldier to do the blessing on the Torah. And normally people wouldn't have their phones in synagogue. But of course, for any matter of life and death, people are permitted to connect to technology. During the time the person was reading from the Torah, the soldier's phone rang and he picked it up. Everybody went absolutely silent as if to listen to what the person on the other end of the line was saying. The soldier answered the phone spoke for a minute or two, told the rabbi that he was being called to duty. He asked the rabbi then for a blessing, who laid his hands on the soldier's head, closed his eyes, and blessed him to go in peace and return in peace. It was one of the most chilling moments I have ever experienced. What have the past couple are raped if someone calls into a crisis hotline? Some iterations would allow abortions up to 12 weeks of pregnancy. In Missouri, submitting ballot initiatives is the first step in allowing voters to amend their state constitution by a simple majority vote. Corley argues Missouri's law is so extreme that voters who typically vote for Republican candidates will support her initiatives. We are seeing stories of women faced with just unbelievable medical complications because they weren't able to get the care that they needed I think most Republicans do not want to see a total ban on abortion. Christine Matthews, a public opinion pollster, says there's data to back that up. Voters, including Republicans, think that the current law in place is too strict and they would be willing to support a ballot initiative that includes exceptions. Matthews has talked with Corley, but hasn't been paid yet by her organization. She conducted a poll in nine states with strict bans, including Missouri, and found that voters overwhelmingly support exceptions. The state legislators who do not support exceptions for rape and incest are very much out of step with constituents in the the state of Missouri. 70% say abortions should be legal in cases of rape and incest. But Corley's proposals aren't being embraced by abortion rights opponents, especially state lawmakers like GOP Senator Bill Eigel, who voted for the current abortion ban. The fundamental belief of the pro-life movement is that all life is precious. And if we get away from that very foundational, fundamental belief, then we are no longer the pro-life state that we talk about being. And supporters of abortion rights have been even more critical. 
They say Coralie's initiatives are too modest. Yes, most folks are accessing abortion early in pregnancy, but there are a whole host of reasons why folks might need abortion access after 12 weeks of pregnancy. That's Colleen McNicholas, Planned Parenthood's chief medical officer for the St. Louis region. She says since any abortion initiative is going to be attacked by conservatives, backers of abortion rights should push for a more expansive ballot initiative. Clear cut, bottom line, the government should not be the one who's making a decision about when somebody should be able to continue or not a pregnancy. Corley says she will likely decide later this year which of the six initiatives to move forward with based on which one is most likely to pass. But getting one of these measures on the ballot in 2024 isn't a sure thing. Missouri Republicans have already prompted time-consuming legal action against other abortion initiatives to try and slow down groups from gathering signatures. Abortion rights proponents have cried foul, but Republicans like State Senator Andrew Koenig don't see a problem. I fully support gumming up the process because I do not want any measure going to a vote of the people, specifically when it comes to abortion, because that life has an interest in being protected by this state. Procedural hurdles aside, Matthews, the pollster, says national trends show that when it's put up to voters, abortion rights tend to prevail. What we're finding is in red states, when the abortion question is on an initiative as a standalone, and this happened last cycle in Kentucky, Montana, and others, voters sided with the reproductive rights position. Abortion rights supporters want to add Missouri to that list next year. To get there, they may have to decide just how far to go to soften the ban. For NPR News, I'm Jason Rosenbaum in St. Louis. It's been a warm autumn in much of the country. New York's Adirondack Mountains have seen record-setting temperatures. The changing climate is unsettling, but it has also meant a rare chemistry of summer-like days and gorgeous fall color. NPR's Brian Mann hiked to a swimming hole high in the mountains and sent us this audio postcard. I'm walking a trail high up in the mountains where the river is just really a mountain stream. Under my feet, it's just a carpet of color, luminous ruby red leaves, yellow gold leaves. And what's kind of crazy for an October hike like this is that it feels like summer. New York's wild Boquette River is one of my favorite places, a chain of rocky pools and waterfalls that wind into the high peaks wilderness. I've never come here to swim so late in the year. On this afternoon, I'm the only human here, just me and the chickadees. To reach my pool, the secret spot where I've been swimming for years, I have to wade through the river, off trail, up through the valley. This day is hot. If you listen close, you can still hear the summer cicadas in the grass along the riverbank. I climb higher, rock hopping over mossy boulders. The river's narrow here, about as wide as a city street, with sun-drenched pools the size of bathtubs. All of it, the sun, the rock, the river water, is framed by crayon box color, the beach and birch shimmering yellow, the maples garnet red. It's hard to explain to people who don't live in the north 
What a gift days like this can be, how good it is to walk in brightness and warmth before the gray and cold set in. Finally, I come to the larger pool where I'll swim. It's a deep basin fed by a waterfall, the surface decorated with afternoon light and fallen leaves. This is gonna be cold. It is icy cold, like a first touch of winter on my sunburned skin, but it's a sweet kind of pain as I float into the tree. So that was it, my last mountain swim of the year in this beautiful little river. Truly magical, wild place. Brian Mann, NPR News, in New York's Adirondack Mountains. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from United Airlines on a mission to do good in the air and committed to achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Learn more at united.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. The holiday ends pretty much the way it began, dry and coolish. 60 degrees now in the Boston area. Should fall as far as the mid-40s overnight tonight. Then for tomorrow, partly sunny skies. Could have a shower in the late morning or early afternoon. This is WBUR. It's 5.59. For the perfect spot to host your next event, Discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at wbur.org rentals. I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israel says the Palestinian militant group Hamas will soon have no military capability with which to threaten Israeli civilians. We are also to make sure that Hamas will not be able to govern the Gaza Strip. Our story coming up on this Monday, October 9th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, misinformation about the war between Israel and Hamas is already spreading on social media. Coming up, we'll hear about the videos that are being taken out of context or mischaracterized. A Massachusetts man living in Israel to explore his Jewish roots tells us what the past few days of being attacked have been like. Also, Donald Trump rallies the faithful in Wolfboro, New Hampshire. It's 601 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Lebanese militant group Hezbollah and Israel have exchanged fire, while Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the country's offensive on Gaza is just beginning. And the death toll is climbing. The Israeli media report more than 900 Israelis were killed in the Hamas invasion, while Palestinian health officials say at least 680 Palestinians have been killed by Israel. NPR's Daniel Estrin is more from Tel Aviv. The exchange of fire across the Lebanon-Israel border for the second time since the latest war began raised concerns in Israel that the conflict could devolve into a multi-front battle. Israel's airstrikes continue on Gaza, sending masses of Palestinians to seek shelter in United Nations facilities there. In an address on television, Netanyahu said, quote, what we will do to our enemies in the coming days will reverberate with them for generations. Israel says scores of Israeli hostages, men, women, children, and soldiers, are being held captive in Gaza. Hamas says every time an Israeli strike without warning kills civilians, Hamas would, quote, execute a civilian hostage. The Israeli military declined to comment on the threat. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The U.S., meanwhile, pledging to support Israel in its now-declared war against Hamas. The U.S. promising aid, including weapons, which a senior Pentagon official says the U.S. has already begun delivering. As NPR's Tom Bowman explains, the U.S. is also sending a carrier group as a message to others there. Officials say the goal of the U.S. carrier heading there in the ships and also dozens of warplanes is a measure of deterrence against anyone in the region taking advantage of this, either Hezbollah, the Iranian-backed militia group in Lebanon or Iran itself. The ships being sent to the Mediterranean include Aegis missile cruisers, which have a capability of missile defense. NPR's Tom Bowman, President Biden, meanwhile, announced at least 11 Americans have died in the violence there. The leader of Scotland says his in-laws are trapped in Gaza. NPR's Lauren Freire reports from London. Scotland's first minister, Hamza Youssef, is married to a Palestinian. Her parents happened to be in Gaza visiting her 92-year-old grandmother when war erupted. Youssef told reporters he and his wife are sick with worry. They're being told by the Israelis to leave Gaza. They're being told that Gaza will be effectively turned into rubble. But they have nowhere to go. They can't leave. Gaza is under blockade. And even with the assistance of the Foreign Office, they cannot guarantee any safe passage. The UK government says it believes 50 to 60,000 Britons are currently in Israel or Gaza. British media have said at least 10 of them are dead or missing. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. Stocks went from early losses to gains despite the violence in the Mideast. The Dow was up 197 points. The Nasdaq rose 52 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Political leaders in Massachusetts are standing in solidarity with Israel as it faces deadly attacks from the terrorist group Hamas. They gathered at Boston Common today with members of the local Israeli community. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu expressed her support for the country. The scale of what has happened over the last several days echoes with the horror and heartbreak of history. But in Boston, it is personal. These are our family members. We mark each and every one of these innocent civilians with our own heartbreak. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey and Governor Maura Healey also spoke today. Harvard professor Claudia Golden is the winner of this year's Nobel Prize for Economics. Golden won for her work in studying the gender pay gap in the labor market. WBR's Josie Guarino has more on today's announcement. 
Golden is only the third woman to ever win the Nobel Prize for economics and the first woman to be the sole economics winner in any year. Golden says she tells her students economics is about much more than finance. Economics is about people. It's about inequality. It's about the female labor force. It's about health. It's about economic development. It's about well-being. And they say, really? I didn't know that. The Nobel Prize Committee says Golden's groundbreaking research allows policymakers to tackle the gender pay gap and pave a better way forward. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. TD Garden is making its events more inclusive for guests with sensory needs. The arena is now equipped with bags packed with noise-canceling headphones, fidget tools, and weighted lap pads. There are also four new sensory rooms, the largest number of these rooms in a single venue worldwide. A nice end to the holiday. 58 degrees, now getting chilly out there. Should fall all the way to the mid-40s overnight tonight. And for tomorrow, partial sunshine, breezy, maybe a bit of drizzle around noontime. Temperatures are about the mid-60s tops. Again in Boston, 58 degrees at 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. On a Monday, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. This is only the beginning. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said today he added, we are going to change the Middle East. He was visiting the southern border of Israel with Gaza, the scene of the unprecedented attack over the weekend by the Palestinian militant group Hamas. He warned that his country's military offensive will intensify. Earlier, Israel's defense minister ordered a complete siege of Gaza, saying no water, no electricity, no food will be allowed in. 300,000 military reservists have been called up. There is speculation that a ground invasion of Gaza is imminent. NPR's Aya Petrawi is in the outskirts of Tel Aviv tonight. Hey there. Hi. Hi. So we're now in day three of this conflict. You are in Israel. What does it look like? What does it feel like there tonight? So yeah, as you said, there's a lot of reservists being called over to the border with Gaza, and there are still Israeli forces going house to house there looking for Palestinian militants. They say they took back control of a police station in one southern town that had been taken over by militants. Um, I can see attack helicopters since I arrived yesterday in the sky heading towards the south. Um, The country's on edge. Schools are closed. Shops are shuttered in Tel Aviv. Um, There was a rocket that hit Jerusalem, wounding two people there. But there's also been violence and killings of Palestinians in the West Bank by settlers and Israeli forces, and some of those killed were children. Um, And the language from defense officials in Israel has been clear. We heard the Israeli defense minister today when he announced that full siege on Gaza, saying that Israel is fighting, quote, human animals that will be dealt with accordingly. And the question now is when Israel will launch a ground invasion. The last time it did was in 2014 during that war, and it was for nearly three weeks. And there were big casualties among uh, Palestinian civilians, but also Israeli forces. Um, But here's the aim of this mission. Um, Here's what Israeli Defense Forces spokesman Jonathan Kornick has said. Our job is to make sure that at the end of this war, Hamas will no longer have any military capabilities to threaten Israeli civilians with. 
And in addition to that, we are also to make sure that Hamas will not be able to govern the Gaza Strip. Yeah, I want to stay with the Gaza Strip. What do we know of, of the situation there today? Well, as you heard Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, saying today, we're just seeing the beginning. And what that beginning looks like is hundreds already killed in the past two days, mosques and high-rise towers bombed by F-16 fighter jets, and around a fifth of those killed so far have been children. And Gazans are fleeing their homes. They're taking shelter in schools and UN-run facilities. A woman uh, named Ruba Akila, who I've known for years and been in touch with daily since the violence erupted, messaged me that the port in Gaza was bombed. She lives um, near there and that glass had shattered in her home. I messaged her two minutes after she had sent me that and those messages haven't gone through. Another woman I spoke with, Iman Abu Saeed, told me she just found out today her cousin was killed in an airstrike. He leaves behind five kids and a wife. She tells me he was a driver and a, a civilian. When I asked her how she's getting by on no electricity or water, particularly her building because the building next to them was bombed and it took out those supplies, she said I think what many moms can relate to. It's very, very hard. Even all the time, I'm feeling so stressed. I can't manage to cook. So we try to, to do some junk food, anything that's in the fridge, because, you know, that uh, no electricity now, no water. And her kids are um, 11 and 12 years old, and she tells me they've already lived through four wars or conflicts with Israel, and they've never left the Gaza Strip because they can't. The area is blockaded. It's been under a blockade for 16 years by Egypt and Israel. And I asked her what she thought about the attack on Israel, the civilians that were killed, the civilians that were taken hostage. We're talking about a, a grandmother, a Holocaust survivor, children. But here's what she said about that. Civilians shouldn't be attacked. But what about the civilians of the Gazans? Is it only the right for Israel, uh, the occupation, to defend themselves? What about the Gazans? What about them? What about them? Who will defend them? Uh, I, I want to ask the what's next question, and I know that's impossible to say, but there is, as we mentioned, growing speculation that a ground invasion of Gaza may be coming and soon. How likely is that? What are the risks? I mean, it's inevitable. Many would say that there's going to be a ground invasion. And I think the dilemma Israel faces is not just the risks that that poses to its own forces going in there, but to the hostages. Israel still hasn't said how many were taken, but we've seen reports in Israeli media of at least 100. That includes soldiers and civilians, again, children, families, elderly. Hamas said an Israeli airstrike actually overnight killed four hostages. It released the image of one soldier uh, before he died uh, who was held there in that and killed in that attack. And and here's another thing Hamas warned. Their military wing, Kata'ib Azadina Qassam, said for every attack without a warning on a home in Gaza that kills children and women there, they will kill a civilian hostage. So I think the larger risk here is that this isn't only between Israel and Gaza, but that it drags in others. Gunmen from a Palestinian armed group in Lebanon tried to cross mm -hmm. into Israel today, leading to clashes there. So there's a real risk that this becomes regional. NPR's Aya Batrali on the outskirts of Tel Aviv tonight. Thank you. Thanks. Among the Americans who have witnessed the brutal attack over the weekend on Israel is Andrew Jacobson. He's a native of Swampscott and graduated a few years ago from Brandeis. He lives in Jerusalem and runs a marketing agency. But he was visiting a friend in Tel Aviv on Saturday when Hamas militants launched a massive attack from Gaza. Jacobson and his friend had gone to services at a synagogue. He told us today about something that happened there that was bracing. 
during the Torah reading, they called up a soldier to do the blessing on the Torah. And normally people wouldn't have their phones in synagogue. But of course, for any matter of life and death, people are permitted to connect to technology. During the time the person was reading from the Torah, the soldier's phone rang and he picked it up. Everybody went absolutely silent as if to listen to what the person on the other end of the line was saying. The soldier answered the phone, spoke for a minute or two, told the rabbi that he was being called to duty. He asked the rabbi then for a blessing, who laid his hands on the soldier's head, closed his eyes, and blessed him to go in peace and return in peace. It was one of the most chilling moments I have ever experienced. What have the past couple of days since then been like? Are you staying in one place? How do you know where it's safe? We're told not to leave where we are. I live in Jerusalem. I came to Tel Aviv, which is about an hour and a half ride on Friday. And I haven't left my friend's apartment since Saturday. I mean, we've gone out to the supermarket to sort of stockpile on food, but I haven't gone home yet. And it does not seem safe at all to be outside on the move, traveling between cities, taking public transportation. So I've been sort of hunkering down with my friend no idea how long I'm going to be here. Are you hearing rockets overhead at any kind of regular interval? I mean, what does the danger feel like? The skies <clears throat> seem to be shaking. Today, we have not heard any sirens. But yesterday morning and yesterday evening, we had several sirens. We don't have a shelter in the apartment. We have a shelter in the bottom of the building. So when the siren goes off, in Tel Aviv, we have 90 seconds. Um you see kids, there's a grandmother here as well. Uh, and the last time yesterday, there was a woman pretty hysterically crying. Are there friends of yours or even family members right now fighting? Yeah, it's one of my close friends. I used to work at KPMG in Tel Aviv, one of the big four accounting firms. I was there in their investment banking department. And one of my close friends on that team is currently fighting in an elite combat unit on the Gaza Strip. His name is Ben. He's a very close friend of mine. He just got married two years ago. He has a daughter who's one years old. He's one of the smartest, happy-go-lucky, good, positive people that I know in my life. I'm lucky enough to know in my life. I also have a, a, another friend named Ben. He's a British-Israeli citizen. He's 28. He's a lawyer in Tel Aviv. And he's been stationed uh, on the northern border uh, in case of any outbreak on the northern border between Israel and Lebanon. So I started a fundraiser actually over the last hour and a half to raise about $10,000 to help their unit with some supplies. I have heard about many Israelis who are trying to find some way to volunteer their services, even if they don't serve in the military. This is your chosen way. What do you most hope to get out of this, raising money for what's happening there? The efforts of Israelis is absolutely astonishing. Across my social media and friends, I'm seeing friends, just to give you an idea, I'm seeing friends baking hundreds of cookies to deliver to soldiers so they can have something nice to eat. I'm seeing efforts of taxi drivers to drive uh, soldiers who have been called up to military bases for free, of course. I'm seeing massive numbers of people buying food and uh, supplies, such as hygiene products. And there's a massive center in Tel Aviv now collecting those items and organizing drivers to bring them to the front lines. 
Andrew, I don't know if you're thinking of leaving or coming back to the U.S., but I wonder if if the U.S. advises American citizens to leave Israel. Would you abide by that? I have no plan to leave Israel. My people is here. I'm an American. I'm also a Jew. And I belong here. I didn't serve in the IDF. I didn't serve in the Israeli Defense Forces. I'm not going down. But I do feel a very deep responsibility to contribute to the safety of my people in whatever way I can. And that's why I'm not leaving. Andrew, thank you for speaking with us. Uh, Andrew Jacobson, who is in Tel Aviv right now, he is originally from Swampscott, Mass., and a graduate of Brandeis University. We hope you will stay safe, Andrew. Thank you, Lisa. This is 90.9 WBUR. Wall Street was open for the holiday today. The Dow and the S&P each rose about six-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq rose four-tenths of a percent. A new report shows three New England colleges alum earned among the highest median shares uh, salaries, that is, 10 years after graduating. MIT and Princeton tied for the top spot on data firm Payscale's list. They had average earnings of $189,400. Babson College ranked sixth at just over 175000 And Dartmouth tied Colgate University for seventh at just over 173000 Marketplace has business news coming up in about 10 minutes. It's 618. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Lessons in Chemistry. Oscar winner Brie Larson stars as a chemist who hosts a cooking show, proving life doesn't follow a formula. Streaming October 13th on Apple TV+. And Innuendo in Natick with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades for Homes and Offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. James Beard nominated chef Yahya Noor comes to City Space Wednesday, October 18th to talk about Somali food, halal cooking, and his hit restaurant in East Boston. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stepping Stone, directly supporting Boston students since 1990. And until all have access to earn a college degree, learn more at steppingstone.org. And Brigham and Women's Hospital, for expert research-based obstetric and gynecologic care, turn to Brigham and Women's, specialists in women's health, with the latest innovative treatments for complex conditions. U.S. News ranks Brigham and Women's number one for obstetric and gynecologic care in the country. BrighamandWomens.org.
It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Hamas's surprise attack on Israel and the escalation into war over the weekend has people in Israel, Gaza, around the world seeking information, seeking facts about what is happening. But social media and messaging apps are awash in viral rumors, also false misleading images and videos. NPR Shannon Bond joins us to disentangle some of these narratives. Hey, Shannon. Hey, Mary Louise. Tell me what people are encountering. They go online, they're trying to find the latest news, and... Well, they are seeing a flood of posts claiming to show what is happening in Israel and Gaza, but not all of them are what they seem. So, for example, one video that's been making the rounds shows what looks to be a helicopter being shot down with a shoulder-mounted weapon. But that is actually not a video at all. It's a clip from a video game. There are other videos circulating that are from real videos from actual conflicts, but they may be months or even years old. In some cases, they're not from Israel or Gaza at all. I spoke with Achia Schatz. He's executive director of Fake Reporter, a watchdog group in Israel that tracks misinformation. And he says this is all the result of a lack of verified information from credible sources at a time of high interest. And then all of this is then getting amplified by, in some cases, people with political agendas. And it's particularly bad on tw- on Twitter, now known as X, uh, where Elon Musk, as owner, has removed many of the guardrails against the spread of these kinds of false and misleading narratives. Yeah, I was going to ask how Twitter is holding up so far in this war, because it's been a really important channel in breaking news situations like this in past. Right. And it still is. I mean, it's where people are going to find information. But these kinds of misleading and false posts are especially rampant there. Since Musk bought the platform, he dramatically cut staff. Take one video that was posted by the co-chair of a group that calls itself Republicans Overseas Israel. The video shows a man playing with a baby, and the caption claims it is, quote, a Hamas terrorist with kidnapped Jewish baby girl in Gaza. But this video was originally posted back in August on TikTok. There is no indication that it depicts a kidnapped child or a terrorist. It has been labeled with a user-generated fact check on X pointing this out. But the post remains up. It's been seen more than 900,000 times. And we also have Musk himself adding to the confusion. He's recommended people follow accounts that have posted false claims in the past. And remember, Mary Louise, the incentives on X have changed. Users who play for a blue check, they get their posts boosted. They can earn advertising money regardless of whether they're credible or not. So what should people be looking for when they are trying to evaluate what's real and what's not when they go online? I think you should bring a healthy skepticism to everything you see. Does the video you're seeing have context? How do you know it's showing what it claims to show? Are there multiple sources for what you're reading or seeing? And especially on messaging apps like WhatsApp and Telegram, you know, those are both very popular in Israel. There are viral rumors and unverified messages spreading there. So people should be wary of messages or posts that have been forwarded many times where you sort of can't see the chain of where it came from. Shannon, some of these things you're telling us about are clearly individuals exploiting chaos for whatever reason. Are we seeing states, state actors, organized groups behind any of these online narratives? We haven't seen evidence of that yet, um, but it's certainly something we're going to be looking out for. Chaos is a welcome environment for all kinds of malicious actors. You know, they're seeking opportunities to spread propaganda, to attack their enemies, to simply amplify this confusion. And so certainly the platforms, you know, national security experts, and we will be watching out for all of this in the coming days and weeks. NPR Shannon Bond spreading truth and facts here on NPR. Thank you very much for your reporting. Thank you, Mary Louise. 
You're listening to All Things Considered. Former President Trump visited New Hampshire today. His campaign is increasing efforts to solidify support in crucial early primary states. His visit comes as Nikki Haley is gaining steam in New Hampshire, and it's a state that some Republican leaders see as the best last chance to disrupt the former president's lead. But those waiting in line to hear Trump speak at a high school in Wolfboro did not seem worried. We are going to go to Wolfboro now, which is where we find NPR. White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Hey there. Hey, Mary Louise. Hey, Franco. So Trump is riding really high in the polls. Why is his campaign pulling out the stops in New Hampshire? You know, look, I mean, there is a difference with New Hampshire. I mean, in Iowa, it's a lot more conservative. It's more evangelical. Voters in New Hampshire, Republican voters, though, are known to have an independent streak. So you have to take a bit of a different approach. And the state has a history of bucking national trends. There's also some uncertainty in New Hampshire because of the primary system. You don't have to be a Republican to vote in the primary. You can be an independent. You can be a Democrat. So that means that the candidates have to approach New Hampshire a bit differently and have to think about potentially a broader audience than than the base. So I mentioned you're there for this rally at a high school. Have you managed to speak to voters? What are they telling you? Yeah, I spoke to a lot of voters and I talked to them about that kind of shifting ground and they did not seem to be that worried about it. Here's Tim Carter, who I caught up with near the front of the line. He runs a home improvement website and writes a column. He was kind of pointing to the long line of people weaving through the parking lot as I spoke to him. If Nikki Haley came here today, she would she would not have five percent of the people that you see right here right now. She's a career politician. Trump is not a politician. That's why all of us love him. He's not a politician. You know, I'll just note, Mary Louise, that I was at a local diner earlier in the day where I spoke to many voters about Haley and some of the other Republican candidates. And many of them had a lot of interest in Haley and thought she was just gaining momentum. Now, Trump has been attacking Biden over what's happening in Israel, the attacks there. What did voters you talked to say about that? Yeah, Trump actually in the in the rally today had tried to blame the surprise attack by Hamas on Israel on Biden. You know, he called Biden a weak leader and cited the administration's decision to free up six billion dollars in funds as part of the deal to free imprisoned Americans. I actually spoke to Deborah and James Morse. She's a local realtor. He's a firefighter. She talked about that six billion dollars and he thought it would be different if Trump was in charge. You just need strong leadership, and we don't have it. And I think, you know, if you've got a brain in your head, I think you realize that the U.S. wants to do right by everybody. But you've got to, you got to have strong leadership, and you got to take care of yourself first, and then help others. Of course, the Biden administration says the money is for humanitarian needs, and emphasize that none of it actually has been spent. But as we know, that hasn't stopped the political attacks, and some voters, at least Republican voters and Trump voters, are listening. And Pierre's Franco Ordonez on the ground for us in New Hampshire. Thank you, Franco. Thank you.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Celtics have their second exhibition game of the season tonight against the New York Knicks. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies tonight, a light breeze this evening and overnight tonight. Chilly temperatures could dip to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunshine and clouds, the off chance of a shower right about the mid-60s, and then sunny skies on Wednesday and maybe through the rest of the week, temperatures staying in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Johnson & Wales University. Prepare for an immersive approach to education, from research and internships to cutting-edge labs, students explore their passions and discover new ones. And Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. <laughs> 